Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Hans Myers, author of The Lion of Roundtop. Hans Myers is the author of The Lion of Little Roundtop, The Life and Military Service of Brigadier General Strong Vincent in the American Civil War. Now, in the foreword of the book, uh, Dr. Frank Varney writes in his very first sentence, this book is going to be controversial. Why controversial? Well, it's controversial because there are certain things just inherent in American history. Uh, there's, you know, the myth of the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776, even though we know it was signed over several days and most of the Founding Fathers signed it in August of 76. Uh, and another one of those really integral myths in American history is that Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the men of the 20th Maine were the saviors of the federal left at Gettysburg on Little Round Top on July 2nd, 1863. And in my book, what I really set out to do was to contextualize the myth, for lack of a better phrase. What I wanted to do was show that there was more than just Chamberlain and the 20th Maine on Little Round Top and show the man who was responsible for their being there and the man without whom the hill would have been lost and possibly the battle with it. Well, let's talk about that man. That was Strong Vincent. Uh, where was he from? Strong Vincent was born in uh, the town of Waterford, Pennsylvania. It's about 10 miles south of the city of Erie in Erie County in northwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, he spent the first few years of his life there in Waterford. Uh, moved to Erie with his family when he was a child. His father was the head of a forging firm in Erie uh, called Vincent Himrod and Company. And he grew up in Erie uh, as one of the sort of elite of the city in the mid-19th century. Uh, his family was incredibly wealthy, old money, both sides, maternal and paternal, with links back to the pre-revolutionary colonial period in America and among the earliest settlers of Erie County, Pennsylvania. How did he get the first name Strong? Uh, Strong was his mother's family name. Uh, she was Sarah Ann Strong before she was Sarah Ann Vincent. Her father, Martin Strong, had been a militia officer, I believe it was, during the Revolutionary War and was one of the first settlers of Erie County in I believe it was 1795 he moved there, 1795 or 96. Since he was from a, a wealthy family, what, what kind of an education would he have had? Uh, Vincent received his education at the Erie Academy. Uh, that's not the academy that's there now. That's not Collegiate Academy. That's not Academy High School. This was uh, a schoolhouse downtown that focused on what we considered to be the typical moneyed curriculum of the 19th century. His reading, writing, and arithmetic growing as he aged to include Latin, Greek, the classics, logic, rhetoric, the sort of college preparatory courses that upper class men would have had at the time. 
Now, we know him as a military officer because of his exploits during the Civil War. Was he intending to have a career in the military? Uh, he was not. He was actually by trade a lawyer. Uh, he was an 1859 graduate of Harvard College, of course now Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he passed the Pennsylvania Bar on December 12, 1860. And five days later, December 17th, the state of South Carolina seceded from the Union. Now, uh, you mentioned his father, his family owned a forging company. Uh, did he, was the law something that he was drawn to? Is there a documentary evidence as to why he, he thought the law was a, a good career? Uh, he actually did not enter college intending to pursue a career in law. Uh, he first enrolled at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut at their scientific school to receive an education, as he phrased it, to make him a better molder of iron. Uh, however, he withdrew from Trinity after a year of study. Whether he was expelled, politely asked to leave, uh, is unclear. But it was following an altercation he'd had with a watchman in Hartford, where Trinity is located, uh, who had made some rather insulting comments towards Vincent's beau at the time, a woman named Elizabeth, who would go on to become his wife. Following his withdrawal from Trinity, he did enroll at Harvard, and that is when he switched his educational focus to the law. So uh, as the Civil War is beginning, he ends up in, in an organization called the Wayne, Wayne's Guards. What was that organization? The Wayne Guards were the Erie County, Pennsylvania Militia Regiment. Uh, they were commanded by a man named John W. McLean. Uh, Colonel McLean was the sheriff of Erie County when the Civil War erupted. And he had formed the Wayne Guards in the 1840s after he had returned from the Mexican-American War. They saw a prodigious upswell in membership in the 1850s, of course, as the, as the sectional crisis uh, relating to slavery is expanding and broadening, and the portents, as you will, are starting to turn ill towards conflict. Vincent joined the Wayne Guards pretty much as soon as he got back from Harvard in the late spring, early summer of 1859. So he had a couple of years of militia training experience under his belt before the Civil War erupted. What was his position in the Guards? Uh, you mentioned in the book that uh, several times that there are elections for officers. Was that a common practice? Uh, it was very common for volunteer regiments. Uh, it bears keeping in mind that in the Civil War there were two real different types of infantry regiments. You had, on the one hand, the U.S. regulars, the traditional professional U.S. Army back to George Washington, and they did not hold elections for their officers. They had their officers appointed. And there were then also the volunteer regiments, which, which are basically militia with a finer coat of paint on them. Uh, the Wayne Guards evolved into the Erie Regiment, which was a volunteer regiment for three months in 1861. And a good chunk of those men then re-enlisted in the 83rd Pennsylvania, another volunteer regiment. So those two regiments between them had elections for officers. In the Wayne Guards, Vincent did not have an officer position. Uh, it was the Erie Regiment in the spring of 1861 where he was elected to be lieutenant. And following that became the regimental adjutant at the appointment of Colonel McLean. 
following the conclusion of their service as the Erie Regiment, he became the major of the 83rd Pennsylvania upon its formation. So since, since he had not intended to have a military career, but now he finds himself in militia unit, uh, did he have any formal training as an officer? He did not. He had no real formal military training. Uh, everything he learned, he learned through the militia drills, through infantry drills with the Erie Regiment in the 83rd Pennsylvania, and through what was called by another soldier in the regiment, the officer's school, which was basically Vincent reading through military field manuals of the time, you know, Hardy's tactics and the like, and then instructing the other line officers of the regiment on the texts. So you mentioned that the Erie Regiment was called to service for 90 days. Why 90 days? Was that, uh, uh, was, were they just expecting a, a short emergency at that point? At that point, yes. This was April of 1861. This is right after the firing on Fort Sumter. And President Lincoln's put out his call for 75,000 volunteers to suppress set combinations, as he referred to the Confederacy in his proclamation. And these regiments were raised for 90 days of service because no one thought this was going to be a protracted and drawn-out conflict. But even just a month later, in May of 1861, Lincoln's come to realize that 90 days of service isn't going to hack it. And so from that point on, you start seeing the calls for volunteers for initially two-year terms and then three-year terms or the duration of the war after that. And the Erie Regiment never saw action. They never left training in Pittsburgh uh, to camp along the Allegheny River called Camp Wilkins. And uh, they returned to Erie on July 20th, 1861, to serve out the remainder of their service, just, you know, 10 days to the end of the month. And it was the very next day, of course, there was the first Battle of Bull Run and the chaotic and disastrous retreat of Irvin McDowell's Army of Northeastern Virginia back to Washington. Now, uh, once the 83rd is established and uh, he goes into that unit, and you said he, he becomes the major of, of that unit, uh, yes. are they in federal service at that point? Uh, the 83rd Pennsylvania is sworn into federal service pretty quickly. They are formed primarily throughout August and early September of 1861 as troops are responding to the call for volunteers. They're sworn into service with the state and federal governments. I believe it was September 10th. I'm not 100% sure on that date off the top of my head. But from that point on, they will continue to serve throughout the remainder of the war. And the 83rd Pennsylvania will actually be the second highest federal regiment in terms of battlefield fatalities in the entire Civil War. Now, you quote uh, one member of his regiment, Oliver Norton, uh, who wrote yes. about Vincent, and he, he, he says, uh, I thought him a dude and an upstart. It's an unusual use of the word dude. What, what did he mean? <laughs> uh, well, at the time in the 19th century, dude was uh, not the sort of laid-back, happy-go-lucky term we see it used as now. Uh, it was much more pejorative. Uh, a dude was a gentleman who thought very highly of himself, a man who was always preening and showing off and making himself shine up like a new penny for no reason other than to just l have people look at him. Would Norton's views of him change over time? Yes, Nor Oliver Norton's views of Vincent would drastically change throughout the progress of the American Civil War. Uh, as, as you quoted, uh, Norton's first impression of him was overwhelmingly negative while they're on 
review and parade at Camp Wilkins in Pittsburgh. And by the end of the war, Oliver Norton is Strong Vincent's most stalwart, diehard defender who would spend the last 30 years of his life basically fighting the tide of historical myth-making to try and keep Vincent front and, story in the center of, front and center in the story of Gettysburg, excuse me. Now, one of the things you write about in the book is the relationship between the 83rd Pennsylvania, Vincent's regiment, and the 44th New York. Uh, what was that relationship yes. like between the two units? Well, the 83rd Pennsylvania and the 44th New York bonded very quickly in the field. Uh, it was the 44th New York arriving at camp uh, off the trains fresh out of New York State, and they had not had the foresight to arrange bivouac at their camp on Halls Hill. They hadn't fully insured their supply lines. So they basically come out of the Virginia darkness with no idea really what's going on or where all they're going. And the 83rd Pennsylvania that first night takes care of them. They set up their campsite for them. They invite them to share their meals. The different companies of each regiment are mixing and mingling together and talking. And from there on, throughout the rest of the war, the two regiments were basically inseparable. Uh, I have a quote in the book, I forget which soldier said it, it was basically like they were one great regiment just with two sets of officers. And they earned the nickname the Butterfield Twins or Butterfield's Twins for their closeness to one another. They would march one behind the other for the rest of the war. They would fight side by side on pretty much every battlefield of the Eastern Theater of the American Civil War. And they even held joint veterans reunions together in the decades after the war. Now, at, at one point early early on, General George McClellan authorizes the 83rd to become, a, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, a Zouave regiment. What, yes. what did that mean? Uh, Zouaves were in the 19th century hierarchy of the romanticization of warfare, second only to, really to cavaliers. You had your dashing cavalryman with the feather in his hat, and the gleaming saber on a white palomino or what have you, and then you had the Zouave. The Zouave was really an element of the French army, and at the time the French army was the model army upon which every other nation in the world based their military service. And the Zouaves were very colorful, very highly decorated elite French regiments. They wore, you know, fezes and Moroccan red trousers and sky blue jackets with orange and green facing. They were just very bright and very garish and very colorful. And for George McClellan, who, of course, is famously styled as the young Napoleon, both by himself and by the press at the time, to confer the honor of being a Zouave regiment upon the 83rd Pennsylvania, that's a big deal. And unfortunately, the uniforms prove wildly impractical. The baggy trousers are getting caught in briars and brambles on picket duty. The feathered chacos, the giant feathered hats they're wearing are flopping around everywhere. It's just ridiculously impractical. And so they're only really a Zouave regiment in name only. Their Zouave regiments were ordered put into storage by Colonel McLean very quickly, and they were back to your typical federal blue. And uh, they, they seem to take this really seriously. You say that, that the men were soon besieged by, in their camps by French tailors and clerks taking measurements and filling out forms to order direct from Paris. So they actually ordered these yes. uniforms from Paris. Oh, yeah. They ordered them directly from Paris, and it wasn't even just the uniforms. They had 
the full accoutrement of Zouave soldiers. They had French-style tents, French knapsacks, French spades, and, you know, far be it from me, but I don't think there's that much difference between, you know, a Pennsylvania spade and a French spade, but apparently there was. And it's this, it's this whole production to turn them into this Zouave regiment, and it lasts about maybe two weeks after the uniforms and everything arrive. So the, they would go into combat for the first time during the Peninsula Campaign. What, what was that campaign about? Where was it? Uh, the Peninsula Campaign was George McClellan's first real major offensive in command of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, his plan, rather than trying to go overland to Richmond, as McDowell had done in July of 1861 with such catastrophic results at first Bull Run, was to sail his army down the Potomac into Chesapeake Bay and then land them on what's called the Virginia Peninsula between the James and the York Rivers, about where Newport News is, roughly. And so McClellan's plan is to land his army here on the Virginia Peninsula and push up the rivers to Richmond because he's got two supply lines on either side <coughs> with the James and the York. And... It doesn't go to plan, one, because McClellan's plan was drawn up without an understanding of the topography of the peninsula. He had been expecting, you know, smooth, modern roads, heavily, they're called macadamized roads. And instead, what he got were sandy roads and swamps and briars and breaks and everything. But even beyond that, McClellan was, by his nature, an incredibly cautious commander to his detriment in a lot of ways. And it was his own hesitation, really, even more than the climate and topography of the peninsula that lost the peninsula campaign. Now, on uh, you're right about on May 10th, uh, Vincent was ordered to conduct a reconnaissance up the Pamunkey River, and they would eventually end up at a slave labor plantation. What was that experience like for him? Uh, unfortunately, we can only really speculate what that experience was like for him. Uh, I tried for years and years and years to try and run down Vincent's personal papers, the letters he wrote during the war, and I was never able to find them. I searched archives and libraries and educational institutions in seven or eight different states, and the only conclusion that I can draw is, as was common in the 19th century, these papers were destroyed after his death for his privacy. But the speculation we do have about Vincent's thoughts on the expedition along the Pamunkey to this plantation where he did encounter enslaved persons for really the first time is that it had a profound effect on him. I mean, his father was a nominating delegate to the 1860 Republican Convention. His father's friend and business partner was William Himrod a man who was a known conductor on the Underground Railroad and firm proponent in African-American equality and education. So Vincent's going into this war predisposed to err more on the abolitionist side of the cause than the strict unionist side of the cause. And it's after this expedition along the Pamunkey that we start seeing a tonal shift of his in the writings we do have. He's getting a lot more bellicose. He's getting to be more of a proponent of the hard war style of execution of battlefield policy. He's becoming more and more like Grant and Sherman would be later in the war. He, in a letter to his wife at one point, talks about the sanctity of the Union is more important than the property or life of the women and children of the South, even.
So to talk about that expedition that they went on. When they got to the plantation, what did they find? Well, it was in some ways almost farcical because they had been sent on this expedition to try and root out Confederate guerrillas, uh, marauders who were prowling around the edges of the army and causing havoc as they were slowly moving up the peninsula. And they arrive at this plantation, and it's a dark night. The dogs start barking, and the enslaved persons come out of their cabins surrounding the big mansion house, and there's clouds over the moon at this point. And so all that the enslaved people are seeing are the glints of bayonets and rifle barrels in the half-moonlight, and they think it's the Confederate marauders, so they turn and run for it. Whereas Vincent and his men see these people emerging from buildings on this property, they think they're the Confederate marauders, yell for them to stop and start pursuing them. And it winds up they're just pursuing one another right basically to the banks of the Pamunkey River where they finally all just basically topple over a cliff down to the shores of the water. And it's only then that everyone realizes it's been a giant case of mistaken identity. Vincent did not find the guerrillas he set out for to find that evening, but what he found instead were enslaved persons willing to give him information on the status and morale and location and supply levels of Confederate troops in the area. When does Vincent have his first experience of combat? Vincent's first real experience with combat is the Battle of Hanover Courthouse. It's one of the Peninsula Battles. Basically, George McClellan receives word from Unionists in the area that there's a Confederate expedition trying to cut his overland supply lines towards Washington. And so he dispatches Fitzjohn Porter's division, which is Vincent's division, to go and intercept this attack. Vincent and, his, and the men of the 83rd don't see much combat in particular that day. They see a little. Mostly they're involved in pursuing the Confederates when they're already retreating from the battlefield. Uh, the 44th New York saw a lot more action that day. It was, relatively speaking, just a small skirmish. But George McClellan, looking desperately for any kind of good news at this point, is heralding it to Washington as if it's the great battle that will decide the war. Now, Vincent eventually... Uh get sick. A lot, of, a lot of the men got sick on this campaign and would go home for a while. Was it unusual for troops to go home in the middle of a war? Uh, it was unusual, but not unheard of. In a lot of cases, when a soldier was particularly ill, they would just be sent to military hospitals, be they in Washington, D.C. or New York or Jersey City, where have you. Uh, Vincent being sent home while he's suffering from the Chickahominy fever is due primarily, one, to his rank. By that point, he's, he's a full bird colonel. Uh, and two, it has to do with the fact that his Chickahominy fever had shifted and begun exacerbating a condition of varicose veins in his scrotum, which required treatment military doctors weren't precisely equipped to handle. So while he's recovering uh, from this, his uh, the 83rd sees quite a bit of combat, including at Antietam. Uh, when does he return to the unit? He returns to the unit in early October of 1862. Uh, he brings with him a 
couple dozen new recruits for the regiment. And so with the numbers he brings, about 20 or so men, they actually have the highest number of men they've had since the beginning of the Peninsula Campaign on the field. And when he rejoins the regiment, they've just been sitting for several weeks by the banks of the Antietam Creek with the rest of the Army of the Potomac because George McClellan's made no moves to pursue Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia back into Virginia to the point where he is grasping for any excuse he can not to move, telling President Lincoln, you know, the horses of my army are just so exhausted. Lincoln, of course, famously snarkily responds back, I would like to know what the horses of the Army of the Potomac have done since the Battle of Antietam that would fatigue anything. What was his uh, position in the regiment at this point? At this point, he is the colonel of the regiment. He's the commander of the regiment. John McLean was killed during the Battle of Gaines Mills while Vincent was ill. Uh, the Major Louis Nagel had also been killed in the same engagement. So Vincent has wound up as the commander of this regiment, despite having been absent at the time he was elected colonel by the men because they knew he would hopefully be rejoining them after he had recuperated from his illness. So the first big battle that he would be involved in as a commander would be the Battle of Fredericksburg. Uh, what happened? Fredericksburg is, of course, really a colossal series of blunders for the Federal Army. Uh, Ambrose Burnside, a good friend of McClellan, had just watched his friend be relieved of command for inaction. So he decided he wasn't going to let the same thing happen to him. So he undertakes a winter campaign, which is dicey under the best of circumstances. But that gets fouled up almost immediately by logistical and supply problems relating to getting pontoon bridges for his army to cross the Rappahannock River at Fredericksburg. So by the time his army is ready to cross, what had been a clear uncontested shot straight to Richmond has got Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia dug in across seven miles of hilltops ringing the river crossings. And it cannot be understated, it is probably one of the worst days in the history of the United States Army when Burnside sent the entire army forward, regiment by regiment, basically, into a meat grinder. It's several hundred yards of completely bare open field surrounded by artillery and musketry fire. It was a slaughter. And Vincent and the 83rd Pennsylvania and their brigade, now including the 20th Maine, who are, this is their first big battle as well. They've just been added to the brigade in the past few months are in the last charge sent forward on that day at Fredericksburg. So they're advancing through the twilight and the darkness as the sun is setting, tripping over the bodies of fallen soldiers and wounded, slipping in mud-soaked, in blood-soaked mud. It's just absolutely chaotic. They make a solid advance. They wind up relatively close to the Confederate position and they take cover in a swale in the ground, and they're there for in excess of 24 hours until they're finally ordered to fall back. How was Vincent as a combat commander? As a combat commander is really where Vincent earned the respect of his men. Like you discussed earlier, Oliver Norton had not had a favorable opinion of Vincent at the start of his career in the, ar in the Army. And it's as a combat commander that Vincent really starts to shine. He's fearless under fire. In the prelude to advancing at Fredericksburg, 
Vincent and his men were waiting for the order to advance, and a lot of the men are, you know, ducking down and seeking cover and lying on the ground to avoid shrapnel and shells flying around them, even as they're just waiting to advance. And Vincent's standing there, back ramrod straight, sword in his hand. He's not even flinching as these artillery rounds are sailing around him. And that's really where a lot of the men first take notice of his capabilities as a commander. His promotion through election prior to that had been due to his logistical skill, his organizational skill for the most part. And this is where everyone really starts to sit up and take notice of just his mettle as a commander. He is, is, by this point, division commander Dan Butterfield. At the end of this battle, actually recommends Vincent for promotion to brigadier general, but he's not given the the promotion. How old is he at this point? At this point, Vincent's 25 years old. That's pretty young to be uh, to have the command responsibilities that he has. Oh yeah. Now, uh, what happens after Fredericksburg? Where does the unit go? After Fredericksburg, the army really settles into winter quarters on the Falmouth North Shore of the Rappahannock River, and Vincent, for most of that time, is serving as president of a court-martial board for the Army of the Potomac. Uh, he had been known as a lawyer, of course, before the war. And so he was asked by Army headquarters to oversee this basically revolving door of court-martials on everything from theft to to dereliction of duty to desertion to disobeying orders. You mentioned that he was offered the opportunity to become a Judge Advocate General. What, what, What did Judge Advocate Generals do in the Union Army at that time? At that time, following the overhaul in 1862, the position of Judge Advocate General of the United States Army was held by a man named Joseph Holt. And Joseph Holt would uh, go on to be one of the more fiery holders of that position. But under him, there are 10 immediate subordinates who are just called Judge Advocates. And these Judge Advocates each represent a field army or a military district of the United States Army at this point in time. And Vincent was offered the position of judge advocate for the Army of the Potomac. It's basically, the easiest way to think of it is he would have been the Army of the Potomac's chief lawyer. He would have represented them in any sort of legal disputes between soldiers or officers and the Army. He would have represented them to lawmakers on Capitol Hill. He would have overseen the operation and prosecution of court-martial cases within the Army. And it would have been an absolutely huge boon to his post-war career as a lawyer if he had taken this position. There would have been only only nine other lawyers in the country who could have said they held this position. And Vincent turned it down. And when his friends in the Army asked him why he'd done this, he just laughed in their face and said, I enlisted to fight. Well, the next big fight that he would be in would be at Chancellorsville. Uh, How did that battle unfold? Uh, Chancellorsville as a whole was... Much like Fredericksburg, it was a disaster from the outset, basically. Initially, Joseph Hooker, who's the new commander of the Army of the Potomac, at this point it's just become a game of musical chairs, uh, tries to get around Lee, who's still at Fredericksburg, by sneaking further up the river and crossing there and coming down on him from the rear and the flank. 
Instead, Lee anticipates this is what's going to happen, and they collide in a tangle of thick Virginia woods called the Wilderness, which they will revisit the next year as well. As well. Uh, in particular, they're now in the proximity of a place called Chancellor's Tavern, Chancellorsville. And Hooker is out of his depth. He's a political general, first and foremost. He has his position due to who he knows, not his military talents. And so he draws all of his forces in, and he sets them on a line. His big mistake, though, is he leaves the flank of this line what's called in the air. There's no natural cover for the end of the line. There's no thing that can stop people from just coming around the side of it and surprising them in the rear. And that's exactly what happens at Chancellorsville. Uh, <clears throat> Thomas Jackson, Stonewall Jackson's famous flanking march completely and almost utterly eviscerates the morale of the Army of the Potomac. He comes crashing out of the woods late in the afternoon and sends two or three entire federal corps to flight. And Vincent's men in the Fifth Corps, at this point Vincent's still serving as head of the 83rd, he's not head of the brigade yet, and they're insulated from this chaos. They're on the left flank of the Army. They're anchored down by a stream. And Jackson tears off the other flank, sets them to rout, and the 83rd and Vincent don't really see any sort of action at Chancellorsville. They just hear it in the distance. So uh, all this is leading up to the Battle of Gettysburg, which, which is the, the culminating moment for his story, Strong Vincent's story. Uh, so wh where is Vincent? You mentioned he wasn't yet in charge of the brigade at Chancellorsville. Is he in charge of the brigade at the beginning of the Battle of Gettysburg? Yes, he takes command of the brigade about a week, a week and a half, two weeks after Chancellorsville. Uh, Thomas Bayliss Whitmarsh Stockton, uh, who had been the brigade commander and was actually the uncle by marriage of Confederate General James Longstreet, uh, resigned after Chancellorsville citing his health. There's reason to doubt he resigned on account of his health because he had been engaged in a rather protracted feud with a subordinate officer. And he tried to have the subordinate officer, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Norval Welch of the 16th Michigan, court-martialed. And Welch had gotten off the court-martial charges, partially with Vincent's help as his defense attorney. And so when Stockton retires, Vincent, as the next most senior officer in the brigade, is given command of the brigade, which at this time after Chancellorsville consists of four regiments, the 83rd Pennsylvania, the 44th New York, the 16th Michigan, and the 20th Maine. So the Battle of Gettysburg begins on July 1st, 1863. Where is Vincent's brigade on July 1st? On July 1st, Vincent's brigade is having for them what was a relatively light and peaceful day. Uh, in the past 48 hours, they'd marched in excess of 40 miles. And so their orders for July 1st were to march 15 miles from Union Mills, Maryland to Hanover, Pennsylvania. Not that bad. It's a warm day, but there's a good breeze. So it's almost like a little vacation for them where they've still got to walk 15 miles. But compared with what they'd just been through, it was relatively placid. And as they cross the line into Pennsylvania, of course, Vincent has the 83rd Pennsylvania unfurl their flags. He has their fife and drum contingent start playing, you know, welcome here again and Yankee Doodle. And there's the famous anecdote, he doffs his cap on the side of the road on his horse watching the flag pass. 
and he just says, What death more glorious could any man desire than to die on the soil of old Pennsylvania fighting for that flag? At what point in the battle does uh, his brigade arrive at Gettysburg? They stop at Hanover for the night, and that's where they learn of the meeting of Confederate and Federal forces in Gettysburg on July 1st. Uh, they get a couple hours of rest, and then Vincent starts them marching through the night. They arrive at Gettysburg in the rear of the Federal position at about sunrise, about 5 or 6 a.m., about 5.36 a.m. on July 2nd. So uh, eventually his brigade would end up on Little Round Top, uh, but they weren't there quite yet. Uh, General Meade sends Governor Morris out to survey uh, Little Round Top. What, what does he find when he gets there? Uh, Governor Warren finds when he gets to Round Top, it's a relatively flat hill. It's relatively flat and it's relatively bare. Its western slopes have been shorn pretty clearly of trees by local loggers. And he gets up there and he realizes if a battery of artillery was put up here, it would have direct firing lines that would force the abandonment of the entire federal line. And so he starts looking around for forces to hold the hill, especially since as he's up there examining the topography and the terrain of the hill is exactly when the Confederate attack on July 2nd begins. That's when John Bell Hood and Lafayette McClaw's Confederate divisions of Longstreet's Corps come screaming out of the woods on Seminary Ridge, charging straight for Dan Sickles' Third Corps at the Peach Orchard. So Warren knows he's up against the clock. He sends his adjutants looking for reinforcements. He sends one to Meade's headquarters, and he sends one to Sickles, who's the nearest corps commander. And Sickles says, I can't spare a man. My men are about to be engaged along the entire length of my line, the Peach Orchard line from Devil's Den up to the Peach Orchard. And it's as this aide, a man named Lieutenant Ranald McKenzie, who would go on to have a rather infamous career in the 1870s as a Native American fighter in the Plains, is leaving Sickles' headquarters. He runs into George Sykes, who's the head of the Fifth Corps. And he explains the situation to Sykes. And Sykes sends his own aide looking for James Barnes. Barnes, Major General James Barnes, was Vincent's division commander. He commanded a division of the Fifth Corps. And Sykes gives him the orders to send a brigade to hold Little Round Top. And this courier is looking for Barnes, but finds Vincent instead. And Vincent rides forward to meet him and says, what are your orders? Give me your orders. The courier says, I was told by General Sykes to find General Barnes. Vincent doesn't care about that at the moment. He says, what are your orders? Captain, give me your orders. And the aide finally says, my orders are to direct General Barnes to send a brigade to hold that hill yonder. Vincent looks at Round Top and says, I will take the responsibility of moving my men there myself, which is a gamble. If the Confederates had never shown up at Little Round Top, that would have easily been a court-martial for desertion and dereliction of duty. But he takes his men, about 1,300 men roughly, and he starts them double-quick marching, running basically up the slopes of Little Round Top towards the positions they will hold in the battle. So once he gets on top of Little Round Top, how does he position the regiments? Initially, he positioned the 44th New York at the right flank of the regiment. 
then the 16th Michigan, then the 83rd Pennsylvania, then the 20th Maine. But the commander of the 44th New York, Colonel James Rice, called old crazy because he, like Vincent, seems to have no sense of self-preservation under fire, uh, insists that in every battle and on every field we have fought and marched side by side, I wish it would be so today. So Vincent orders the 16th Michigan to pass the 44th New York and take up position on the right flank. It's hard to visualize if you have not been to Gettysburg and you have not looked at these spots, but the 16th Michigan is on the right flank. They're the smallest of Vincent's regiment, about 150 men, and they're on a position that's basically just bare boulders. They have no natural cover. They have no trees. They have no partially deconstructed rock fences they can use. They're just there on the bare rocks. The other regiments of the brigade have that cover. They have the trees, they have the rocks, they have the half-built stone fences. And the line is closer to the base of the hill than its crest, which led to the unfortunate fact that Governor Warren couldn't see that they'd arrived there. Warren had no idea that they were there. So he was continuing to frantically look for reinforcements, even as Vincent's men are coming online. And Vincent is giving the famous, you must hold this ground to the last orders to his commanders that we see portrayed in the film Gettysburg and in the novel The Killer Angels. So after his brigade arrives, how much time do they have to prepare defenses before they start confronting the Confederates? They arrive on the hill and they throw out their skirmishers. They th each regiment throws out a couple companies of men to function basically as light infantry to go out some distance in front of the regiment and basically be sentries, keeping an eye out for the approach of the enemy. From the time that those men are sent forward as skirmishers to the time that the 1st Confederate Regiment is closing in and the skirmishers have to fall back is about five minutes. Now, as, as the battle's beginning, we're about to see the events that are kind of like the controversial part of, of your book. So can you talk about uh, the different views here? Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, uh, his, his views about what happened there versus, uh, say, what happened from Strong Vincent's point of view? Well, it's, re it's really important to emphasize that a lot of this, what I talk about when I refer to the Chamberlain myth, when I refer to the misconception that Chamberlain and Chamberlain and the 20th Maine alone were responsible for holding the federal left, a lot of that was not Chamberlain's own words. Chamberlain, for the remainder of his life, would continue to say, Strong Vincent was an admirable man. I've never known a better commander in his grade. But what happened was after Chamberlain's death, when there were several varying sources for the fight at Gettysburg, uh, Chamberlain's account started to gain primacy because of its inclusion in not only the official records, the War of the Rebellion, uh, but also because it started getting picked up by fiction writers and by novelists. And that's really where this belief that Chamberlain was the sole savior of the federal left started to come into play. But on July 2nd, 1863, there's really not much at all concern about legacies or the future. Chamberlain's a regimental commanding officer who, above all else, is trying to make sure his men can handle the fight they've been given. Vincent's trying to keep his brigade intact in the face of overwhelming Confederate assault, outnumbered almost two to one by attacking Confederates. 
and he's primarily more focused on getting reinforcements for his position. So that's what a lot of July 2nd is going to be focused on with the fighting for them. Chamberlain's going to be worrying about the, the supply of ammunition for his regiment, and Vincent's going to be worrying about reinforcements for his brigade. So how did this fight on Little Round Top unfold from that point? From that point, it's basically a series of different attacks. Vincent was in overall command of the federal defenses, and he did not really have a counterpart on the Confederate side. It was elements of two or three different Confederate brigades that were making the attacks on his position. There was no one officer in overall command. So you had attacks that weren't coordinated with one another. You had regiments pulling back or pulling forward or shifting position without consulting with any of their other comrades on the Confederate side. And I think that's another big misconception we have about the fight on Little Round Tom because we're so conditioned from Ken Burns' The Civil War, from, you know, the Ronald F. Maxwell film Gettysburg, to view it almost as just monolithic charges again and again and again with all the Confederate regiments hammering the line. But it was more spasmodic, more impromptu, more chaotic. By the time that Chamberlain and the 20th Maine make their famous bayonet charge at the end of the fighting, there is only one Confederate regiment left on the field. The others have all pulled back for one reason or another. And by the time that charge is made, there is no danger of the Federal left being flanked or collapsing, even if the 20th Maine were overrun. Now, who was Colonel Patrick O'Rourke? Patrick O'Rourke, Patty O'Rourke, as he was called, was an Irish immigrant. He'd moved from Ireland to the United States when he was about a year old with his family. Uh, who had grown up around Rochester, New York. And O'Rourke was a graduate of West Point, class of 1860 or 1861, I forget which off the top of my head, uh, who was first and foremost a military engineer. He had been one of the engineers who had orchestrated and overseen the siege of Fort Pulaski in Georgia and was one of the officers to accept their surrender. And after that, in 1862, he had been made the commanding officer of the 140th New York, which was a new regiment primarily made up of Irish-American immigrants from around Rochester. And at Gettysburg, O'Rourke is part of Stephen Weed's brigade, also of the Fifth Corps. And Warren, still frantically looking for reinforcements, not knowing Vincent and his men are there, finds Patrick O'Rourke at one point because Warren had used to have been the commander of Weed's brigade. And he looks at him and he says, Patty, give me a regiment. And O'Rourke says, I can't. I have to move up. General, General Weed is expecting me. Patty, give me your regiment and I will take the responsibility. So O'Rourke detaches his 140th New York from Weed's brigade and sends it up round top at Warren's order. And they arrive on Little Round Top, right at really the zenith of the fighting. This is the hottest, the heaviest the fight has been. This is when the 16th Michigan, Vincent's right flank, is breaking and collapsing. They're starting to retreat. This is when Vincent is wounded. And O'Rourke just sees the 16th Michigan collapsing gets off his horse. He doesn't even stop his men to get them out of their marching formation of column of fours. And he just gestures with his sword and yells, down this way, boys, leads them forward down the hill to take the position of the 16th Michigan and strengthen it. 
and in the process of doing so is shot through the throat and instantly killed. So as, as the fighting is going on, where, where is Strong Vincent? Vincent spends most of the fight on a boulder behind the position of the 83rd Pennsylvania. He is at a slightly elevated position compared with the men of his brigade, so he can see over their heads, he can see the Confederate forces coming in on all sides. But his central location lets him look up and down the entire length of his line. And for most of the battle, he's standing there. And you can find this rock at Gettysburg. It's the one they've put a white marble memorial tablet to Strong Vincent on, on a path just off, just south of the main crest of the hill. And it's on this rock that he sees the 16th Michigan on his right flank starting to buckle and starting to break. So he hops off this rock and he starts heading up the hill to intercept them. And he's yelling at soldiers. He's smacking them with a riding crop he's holding. That's not working. So he finally just hops up on this huge boulder and he yells, don't give an inch, boys, don't give an inch. And that's when he's shot through the left side of his groin. The bullet shatters his left groin and his left hip and he goes down. So uh, after he's wounded, is he removed from the battlefield or is, does he stay on Little Round Top until the fighting is over? He refuses to be removed from the field. He insists on staying on Little Round Top. So he's carried by his men who are around him back to the rock he'd been standing on to watch the fighting and he's laid on top of this rock. And he will remain there for the rest of the battle. Though by this point, there's not much action left. The arrival of O'Rourke's 140th New York really ends the battle on Vincent's right flank. The Texas regiments who are attacking them will fall back after O'Rourke arrives. So by this point, there's just the one attack of the 15th Alabama really left, the one that Chamberlain will counter with his bayonet charge. So now uh, he would eventually die of his wounds. And, uh, but talk about his memory of, you know, obviously he wasn't around to write a memoir uh, as, as uh, the story of the battle was being told. Uh, why do you think he was forgotten? I think it has a lot to do not only just with, you know, the joke my undergraduate advisor always used to make when I would talk to him about this. He'd always just go, well, Chamberlain had the better publicist. Uh, I think it's partially to do with that, but I also think it's more to do with imagination, if that makes sense. The American people have always, always, always loved a heroic story. A story of, you know, the small defeating the mighty. It's a lot of our founding story. It's a lot of our story of, you know, local activists changing the nation, one protest, one bill signing at a time. And I think something similar happened with Chamberlain at Little Round Top. Because you have these novelists in the 30s and the 40s who are seizing on the idea of the 20th Maine being alone on Little Round Top, you're starting to get these stories where it's, you know, 300 men from Maine against 2,300 Confederates. And that fits a lot with the American pop culture's interest in romanticizing not only warfare but history. And as that just builds, it doesn't leave a lot of room in the picture for others. And as that narrative builds, it becomes what people expect. Uh, talk a little bit more about Chamberlain's uh, writings. He did write about the, some of the different uh, elements of the battle. Uh, were those accepted by the men who had served with him? Uh, 
for the most part, yes and no. It depends on what you're talking about. Uh, his official report on the Battle of Gettysburg, which had several issues with it relating to its accuracy, as evidence suggests it was written about 20 years later because the federal government had lost his initial report, was more or less accepted, and that is still the version that's in the official records today. Uh, about six pages, 2,500 words, a lot of purple prose. Uh, where the controversy really starts to come from is 1912 and 1913, the 50th anniversaries of Fredericksburg and Gettysburg. Uh, Chamberlain writes an article called My Story of Fredericksburg for a magazine in 1912, and that magazine is Hearst's magazine, William Randolph Hearst's magazine. And as students of history will know, Mr. Hearst was not always the most, let's say, factual of editors. And there is evidence to suggest that Hearst editors did make some changes to my story of Fredericksburg. And that article did receive some minor backlash from veterans who'd fought alongside Chamberlain. But where the storm really comes into being is with his article the next year for Cosmopolitan magazine through Blood and Fire at Gettysburg. Uh, that's another Hearst magazine. And Chamberlain was so disgusted by what they'd done to his piece, he did not even ask for copies of it. We have letters from Chamberlain to people asking him for copies. The editors have so mutilated my Gettysburg with the addition of connective tissue that I have not bothered to get copies. Did uh, how would how would you like Strong Vincent to be remembered at at Little Round Top compared with uh, how Chamberlain is remembered? I'm I did not set out to write this book to tear Chamberlain down. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Joshua Chamberlain. What he and his men did showed extraordinary bravery on July 2nd, 1863. And he, of course, would be severely wounded the next year as well. Went on to receive the Medal of Honor, served four terms of governor of Maine, served as president of Bowdoin College. I have, no, I have nothing against Chamberlain. The way I would like to see Vincent remembered is, at the very least, equal to Chamberlain. Because while Chamberlain and his man's bayonet charge, as I just said, you know, was heroic, was a martial exhibition unlike anything else that we'd seen to the Civil War at that point. The fact of the matter is, if it wasn't for Strong Vincent, the 20th Maine would not have been there to hold the federal left, whether or not they did it alone. Were it not for Strong Vincent, by the time Governor Warren found troops to take that hill with Patrick O'Rourke, the 140th New York would have been fighting their way up a Confederate-held hill. And realistically, were it not for Strong Vincent, it's quite possible the Federal Army would have lost the Battle of Gettysburg. So what I'd like to see at Gettysburg is just more acknowledgement of his role. What there is, you have to really look for. And I mean, everyone goes to the 20th Mains Monument. Everyone knows where that is on the auto tour. And while they're doing it, they walk right past an old War Department marker for Strong Vincent's brigade. While they're doing it, they're going the complete opposite direction of the marble tablet that shows where he stood to watch the fighting where he lay after he was wounded. And while they're doing it, they're 
completely missing the rock beside the castle monument of the 44th and 12th New York on Little Round Top that just has carved into it by the point of a soldier's bayonet around the time of the battle. General Strong Vincent fell here July 2nd, 1863. Well, we've been talking about the book, The Lion of Little Round Top, The Life and Military Service of Brigadier General Strong Vincent in the American Civil War. Hans Myers, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.